Beagle steel soars high, igniting Dallas stars fire. Our steel slices like blades, unbreakable as nails. For 36 unbeatable years, we've fueled success with dependable steel. Contact Eagle Steel today and let's build something great together. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Evan, you're on the road. Where are you now, anyway? You in Pittsburgh? Uh, yes, that's where the Rangers are currently playing. So, yes. I don't know. You know, you just kind of split around. You've been in places where the Rangers have not been at times in your life. Yeah. That's true. But this team... This team, this big league club matters now. You know, it's not like past years. It, as long as uh, they keep the bullpen out of things, the, the big league club matters. Unfortunately, they can't keep the That's bullpen out. That's been an out. issue, keeping the bullpen out. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes here. Uh, we're going to first, though, talk about uh, the Stars, uh, who, as we're taping this Tuesday morning, will be playing uh tonight at the American Airlines Center against the Las Vegas Golden Knights, who hold a 2-0 lead in this series. Now, you know me, Mr. Hockey, uh, and uh, and everybody tells me, uh, and everything that I can glean from all of this, is that um, they could be very easily one-to-one. Uh, you know, you watch that uh, game two, and they're winning two-to-one with, oh, about two and a half minutes left, and then uh, – they give up a goal, and it's all of a sudden it's two to two, and then they go into overtime, and quickly in overtime they miss their big chance to win it. Wyatt Johnston wide open in front of the net, couldn't flip it past Aiden Hill, and then uh, pretty much the the Knights came right back down, and uh, and Jake Ottinger uh, was kind of got uh, caught up in a wash of uh, Knights down there, and the game's over. Uh, just like that. They have really struggled in overtimes uh, throughout the season and in the playoffs as well. Uh, I guess the idea is not to get to overtime. But the uh, point, I think, is that they have really done a, uh, you know, it's it's not like there's a big makeover this time. This is the first time in the playoffs the Stars have lost uh, two games in a row. Um, they've always bounced back really well. And um, this is the first time that, also, when they've lost, it, that uh, Pete DeBoer couldn't get all over his team for a lack of effort or a sloppy effort or whatever. There were a couple of bad plays involved in that game that, that cost them that game. Uh, Ryan Suter made a really ill-advised pass behind his own net, uh, got it picked off, and then uh, next thing you know, the game is over. Um, but overall, they played very well. Jason Robertson uh, has scored a a couple of goals uh, out there in uh, Las Vegas, and he hadn't scored any in a long time. So uh, I, I do think the the Stars' chances of getting back in this series are, are very good, these two games at home. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they went back to Las Vegas at 2-2. At two to two. Uh, We'll see what they do here that, that in the, with the home crowd. Um, but I will say this, you don't want to get down 0-3, uh, uh, do you, boys? David, I did not realize that in the NBA, no team has ever come back. Never from, in the NBA. You've seen it a few times in hockey, but never in the NBA. Yeah, four times in hockey. Four times. The last time in 2014. Uh, but never in the NBA. That, that just That's just really remarkable. I do think that it, uh, it does speak to – in hockey, you just have such fluke things that can happen. 
you know, and I, I think more so than any other sport. It's just sometimes it's just you. Know, I, I talk to people, uh, you know, who spent a lifetime covering uh, hockey, and uh, and I'll ask them, "What do you think about this?" And, go, and he'll say, oh, "I don't know." You know, it's just like they 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 don't have a good feel for what's going to happen in these games. More more can can go wrong in a hockey game in a matter of seconds, I think, than in any other sport. It's just it's just amazing to me. Well, hockey you playoffs the- are just more unpredictable, right? I mean, they are just more unpredictable because one guy can win a series for you, as opposed to the NBA, where one guy can take over a game. One guy in a hockey series can win it for you. If a goalie stands on his head. He can absolutely win it for you. And the other part about hockey goals are like the the goal that that Vegas scored the other night that kind of just got between Ottinger's pads and the in, in in his back skate. There's so many goals in hockey that are just deflections that aren't necessarily you know they're they're planned for traffic. They're not necessarily planned to go in, and so it depends on it. It literally depends on the bounce, and and that's why those series are so unpredictable, and it's why. Hockey is such a great playoff sport. Yeah, there, there aren't that many, but they have more significance, right? <laughs> I mean, the the deflection goals and the and the fluke nature of it, and I think that's why you've seen, even though it's still a very small number, you have seen four teams come back from 03 to win in hockey, where you never had in basketball, because you can have a few fluke play, you know, fluke plays in basketball. Uh, but it doesn't carry the same weight than a goal does in hockey. Uh, just because you have so many more opportunities. Points. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, so so it's minimized. It's kind of the the fluke nature of it. The 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 superior team always has the advantage, and there are more instances for that to shine through. Whereas the superior team can dominate by and large a hockey game and still lose it. And I don't know that the Stars were in that position necessarily in two, but I, I thought that they, you know, they appeared to be the better team, kind of controlled the tempo and the pace throughout and, and wound up losing. But the, the thing now is there's just, there's no margin of error. You have to win, you have to either win four straight or four or five. And uh, so um, they, they are in a very tough spot and, and it shouldn't be minimized that they're down 0-2. I mean, every other series, they lost the first game and they were able to equalize it. And then it plays out differently. Um, there's a desperation now, and suddenly, you know, this game is tied in the third period. That looks a little different. I, you know, I, I do think one thing, they, you know, the, the Stars should be superior on the power play, and I think that probably needs to uh, show itself in this game three for them to get back into this series. Yeah, there's no question about that. They have been a very good power play team all year long, and especially in the playoffs, even better. And conversely, uh, the Las Vegas is very poor against the power play, or at least has been. But that's the thing. During the regular season, the the, uh, Stars were 0 for 8 on the power play against uh, Vegas. And, you know, they just – Las Vegas plays a different style. You know, like the the Stars' penalty kill is very good, obviously, and – but they're they're kind of you know they they get back into their goalie and and they they let people circle around the edges but they get back and do a lot of protection. Las Vegas is just the opposite. They get out in the passing lanes, they get out on the boards, and they they uh, they kind of uh, they take the pucks away. You know, so it's kind of hard to, for the stars to get that going, and they're going to have to figure out how to do that because that that was their big advantage going into this series. The fact that they are so good on their special teams and that is not really 
proven to be the case here. They're they're just pretty much even with Las Vegas and in, in, uh, they're on their uh, special teams in this series so far. So they're going to have to pick that up pretty quick here. And that right. was our NHL report. Thank you, Skates Lafleur. Yeah, Evan, can you stop yelling at us? Is is that is that possible? Are you in your announcer's voice? Is that what's going on here? Am I yelling? I I can't tell between the headphones on and my hearing aids. I can't tell what I'm doing. Yeah, it's pretty much in the story of your life. Uh, you can't tell what you're doing. But that's okay. <laughs> you right, can't so tell what you're doing either, if that helps. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, uh, let's uh, move over now and talk about the Rangers. Uh, Evans there in Pittsburgh uh, on uh, Monday. Uh, here's a shocker. The bullpen once again blew a game for the Rangers, which makes, I think, 64 games they've blown this <laughs> this year so far. Is that not correct, Evan? Am uh, I, are yeah. my numbers off? That's correct, Kevin. Um, yeah. They they never led that game last night, Kevin. So technically, the bullpen didn't blow a save. It just kind of yeah, they were fine. Uh, <laughs> blew a opportunity. Um, listen, since May first, this bullpen has a seven point two one ERA, and I believe it's allowed twelve home runs now in fifty one innings. And you go wow. back to May first, and that's about the time that Degrom left the rotation for the injured list, and Dane Dunning moved from the bullpen into the rotation. And about the same time that Jose LeClerc was pulled out of the closer role and Will Smith was moved there. And my whole point on this is you moved your best guy from the front of the bullpen and your best guy to the back of the bullpen. And so what you've created is this giant vacuum in the middle with no reliability whatsoever. I, I thought last night, again, was another perfect example of what can go wrong for this bullpen does because you're relying on guys who are just not consistent strike throwers. Josh Spores last night, just as he did against Atlanta. You know, against Atlanta, he got the first two outs and then started walking guys. Last night, he got the two outs in the seventh inning, lost complete command of, of the strike zone, threw six straight balls, and the next thing you know, he's in a jam and can't get out of it. And then Joe Barlow, the, the newest addition of the bullpen, he gives up the grand slam to Marcano on a on a bad breaking ball. This this team just doesn't have big swing and miss pitchers in the bullpen. Doesn't have guys who can blow things by guys, and doesn't have guys who throw strikes consistently. And I know where all this is going in your mind, Kevin. Yeah, uh, this is awful. Uh, here, here's where I'm going with it. In every other aspect of this of this team, and we, we wrote about that and talked about it all spring long. Uh, they upgraded this season. You know, they 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 said, "Hey, listen, we're not going to go with the kids anymore unless they fight their way into the lineup." We, we've gone out, and we've got proven veterans, and we've gotten those for the rotation, and we've gotten those for the, the lineup. And and you look around this lineup, and and this is this is big time. You know, it would be easy to dismiss the Rangers as just having a really fast start if you didn't look around and say, "Well, they got a silver slugger at first base." They've got all-stars at second base and shortstop. they got a, a, a top-five pick playing third base. Uh, they've got a, a kid now playing – he should be playing left field most of the time now, Ezekiel Duran, who was the, the prime guy they got back in the trade for Joey Gallo from the Yankees. Uh, Leody Tavares has been one of their you know most heralded uh, minor leaguers forever. 
and Adolis Garcia, one of the best stories in baseball in right field. So it's not like that. That you uh, now, I do think that the the numbers they're putting up offensively are unsustainable. There's just no way they can continue to have this run differential that they've got now. I don't think Tampa Bay can do that either. I mean, what is is like Atlanta third in run differential, and they're about they're almost half what the Rangers are, you know, in in plus. So those things can't sustain themselves. But the bullpen is the same crappy bullpen that has been for about three years now, uh, or maybe longer than that. Uh, and I'm just a, I'm just a little amazed that this has kind of been allowed to go on. Like Josh Spores to me is a perfect example. Oh yeah, here's a guy with great stuff, and he has great stuff. So let's run him out there. You know, well he can't throw strikes. You know, and, and that's kind of been the issue with this team is that we're going to throw strikes now. You know. That that's going to be what we do, and yet they're relying on people in, in the back of the bullpen who cannot do that. So I I realize it's it's too early. Everybody and I I I talked to Tom Grieve the other day. Tom said yes, it is. It's just really kind of early to to try to do anything now. You know they've shown a real resilience and ability to bounce back, and uh, so they they kind of got to try to get through the next month or so. But I got to tell you, Evan, the the Astros are coming. The Astros are probably a better team than the Rangers anyway. They had this opportunity to get up uh, on the Astros, and now they're, as we're taping this on Tuesday, they're just one game ahead of them, and they are, I think, second place in the wild card right now or tied for second place in the wild card, um, even after their great start. So, I mean, really – can the Rangers afford to just say, well, we're going to have to wait because we'll have to overpay if we go out and try to acquire bullpen pieces? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really stressful situation for Chris Young to have to work through, but um, I, I think you've summed it up well. I, I, I do kind of liken it this way. Um, you're going to have to overpay for a reliever at some point in time. There's no doubt about it. But the question is, do you want to overpay? Or do you want to move into what amounts to a hostage situation? And I think right now, the more the Rangers pursue a guy in a trade, the higher the ransom is going to become for that reliever. Uh, at some point, the Rangers are going to have to be get to be okay with the idea that they're going to trade somebody that in the long run, people will look back and say, wow, can you believe the Rangers gave up so-and-so to get a reliever maybe as a rental for the year? But the facts on the ground are this is a team that's off to its best start in over a decade, that this team hasn't won in six years, and that it's got an opportunity in front of it. And so that's what they're going to have to weigh, and it's still an art of a negotiation. Uh, I think there are you know, there's there's a lot of things to consider. The guy who could probably be most had right now is a Roldis Chapman. Um, do you want to bring a Roldis Chapman in here? And if you do, are you bringing in a guy who quit on the New York Yankees before the playoffs last year? Not to mention a history with a domestic abuse allegation. And how does that play for the whole planks in Chris Woodward in Chris Woodward in Chris Young's platform for building an organization? central to which, and is written on the Rangers' clubhouse walls, be a good teammate. How do you justify that? That's going to be a difficult one to swallow. I think there are going to be more guys that become available more realistically. 
um, as we go forward. I think the White Sox are a potential trade partner with Joe Kelly, with Kendall Graveman. You know, I floated the idea of do you even try and pursue Lance Lynn as kind of a John Smoltz type move to the bullpen? Um, we saw David Bednar, who would be one of my favorite guys to go after last night, but then he gave up a two-run home run to Josh Young in the ninth inning last night uh, here in Pittsburgh. Uh, and you've got Alexis Diaz in Cincinnati, another controllable closer that's starting to emerge. Uh, and, and there's a lot of things for the Rangers to wrestle with, but yeah, I think you've got to do something. And even if that's right now, go and make a waiver claim for somebody like the Rangers did with like a Darren O'Day in 2010 and got lucky or, or with a Jason Grilly, like they got lucky, I think two years later, you know, you, you need to try some other things. I, I, I love Josh Spore's stuff. I love the velocity. I love all the metrics, but for me, this is a guy who, with, particularly with two strikes, really has trouble making mistakes. And when he makes mistakes with his curveball, it is a dead center cut, hanging fat pitch that guys absolutely crush. And that's troublesome. Um, there are there are similar issues with other guy with other relievers there too. See, here, here's my problem though about waiting. Uh, is that if we wait too long here, if the Rangers wait too long to make a deal here, everybody's having uh, trouble with relievers, right? So, you know, if you if you wait the standard time like everybody else, well, then somebody else, then you're talking about really getting into a, a bidding war with people then. And to me, if you get out in front of that a little bit, maybe you end up paying the same as you would pay if you waited anyway, and then you're going to, but you still get the guy you wanted. Whereas if you wait, you know, you may not. I mean, I just think that uh, there are uh, – yeah, I get it. Uh, I, I understand the whole – especially with relievers. I mean, my gosh, you just feel like you can build a bullpen every year and you don't really want to be giving up too much for those unless you're just kidding – a world-class guy. Now, you know, Diaz may be that guy. He's young and he's controllable. And, and, and so maybe that's somebody who could develop and, and be that for, for multiple years for you. So that's a, maybe that's a different kind of situation. Uh, but you know, I gotta tell you, you know, I, I watched Fernando Abad the other night and, and, uh, and CJ Nikowski made a great point about him, which was that, well, he, he opens himself himself up so much when he pitches that, that it's uh, the hitters can tell what's coming, but he's got such great stuff. You watch him uh, pitch and he's, as a left-hander, especially uh, that I got to think he was, he's worth uh, a, a tryout and, and then the Rockies released him. So to me, it's like, why, why not bring a guy like that in, give him a shot, let Mike Maddox take a look at him, see if there's something you can do to, to kind of get him to, to close up a little bit more. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. You just need to be bringing in people here. It's like there should be auditions out there every day uh, because what's coming through right now, it, it ain't working. Well, and I, I would say, you know, to make any moves really with this club, the way the roster is constructed, you're going to have to make some final decisions on people to be able to bring somebody in. To right. bring in a Fernando Abad means you're going to have to probably DFA Josh Spores for assignment because he doesn't have any more options. And you'd have to create room on the 40-man roster. Or to bring somebody else in, you'd have to potentially consider, you know, DFAing Taylor Hearn because he's on the 40-man roster. And, and, you know, have you got to a point with him where you feel like, since you've already sent him down this year, do you feel like the returns are, are diminished on that? 
he's 28 and he hasn't he hasn't demonstrated to you what you what you want. The flip side of that is both those guys are, you know, they're power arms and relievers tend to, you know, can get it later. And if you let those guys walk away, you know, are you letting really good potential talents walk away? So it's a real fine line. I will say this. I do think that Chris Young will act decisively in one fashion or another. Um, I don't think he will let this linger uh, into June or, 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 or let it run all the way up to the trade deadline. Something has to be done. Some kind of action has to be taken. Um, and whether that's a trade or whether that is finally cutting the cord on some guys that you think just haven't been able to get it done, these are the realities of baseball. And it's why, you know, relievers circulate through the league over and over again before somewhere they hit. Um, and the Rangers just need some help in their bullpen right now. There's just, there's no other way around it. This is, the offense has been much better than I think people expected. The starting rotation has been better than people expected. They've withstood injuries to both their best player in Corey Seager and their best pitcher in Jacob deGrom. And it makes the bullpen issue that much more glaring. Um, there have been some extenuating circumstances in certain in, in certain occasions. Look, if Dane Dunning had gotten through the six last night without that walk, maybe Spores comes in, pitches the seventh clean, doesn't have to come back out and start another inning. Then you turn over the eighth to Barlow clean and things work. Last week against Atlanta, Nathan Uvalde basically said, took a blame for that, that in the seventh inning – he walked two guys, and it forced the bullpen when they came in to face the top of the order instead of getting a nice low-leverage situation against the bottom of the order. So it all kind of works hand-in-hand, hand, but the bottom line is the Rangers have got to get better execution from their bullpen. It's okay for them to make pitches on occasion. And this is a decision, too. They Management didn't necessarily believe they would have to make at this stage, right? And this goes back to where the team is overall, maybe being better offensively, uh, weathering those key. I mean, if you would have said your best pitcher and one of your best, you know, day in and day out players was out, and you'll still have this level of offensive expertise and what the pitching staff, the starting pitching staff has done, uh, you did not think you would be sitting here at this juncture of the season discussing the you know, how to manage behind that in the, in the rotation. And, and I think sometimes when those decisions are thrust on you, when you didn't really have a scenario where you saw you would have to address it at this stage, it takes a little bit more time to, to wrap your head around it and decide where to go because it's not, I mean, part of good management is projecting what decisions you're going to have to make over the course of the season as well and at what stages. And, and I just don't think when they were going through their contingency plans that this was pretty high at this stage given everything that's happened. I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point, David, that the, the team has been better than they expected and the bullpen has been worse than they expected. And and so I don't know that they planned for that contingency. And and, and that's a question worth asking. It's it's a really good point. Let me ask unlike, you this. Unlike the ones Kevin makes. Well, unlike yeah, the points right. I usually make, which are none. Uh, look, so, so let me go back to the Matt Moore situation. So Matt Moore was terrific last year for the Rangers. Uh, uh, worked on his curveball. It was better than he's been in, in years. Uh, and then he just sat around. I, I got to tell you, I don't know anything about Matt Moore's 
personal situation. He's a he's a veteran guy. He's been around a long time. He was a he was a really good starter at one time. Then he became a, a, a good reliever. Uh, but he just sat around and sat around and sat around all winter long. The Angels finally signed him, and he's got like what a, a one five ERA right now uh, in in a relief role. I mean, what was and, and how? And I can't imagine that he signed for anything you know prohibitive. Uh, for, for well, I, I believe he got six and a half million, and I believe the you know the Rangers felt really? yeah, and and the Rangers felt like they didn't have that kind of money to spend on a reliever, didn't think that that a reliever was worth that kind of value, and you know in hindsight now it looks like it looks like a poor decision because they they spent they spent two and a half or one and a half on Will Smith, and they spent two or one and a half on on Ian Kennedy. Um, and you know, Matt Moore would look really good in the Rangers bullpen right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, and look, not everything's going to work out and they, and they did a lot of things, uh, and they, to, to, to fix, you know, obviously when you go out and buy a whole rotation, you know, it, it's hard to complain. Well, why didn't you buy, you know, buy a, a, a relief, a lefty reliever too. Uh, but as David pointed out, it's just that this is even worse than what they thought it was going to be. I thought it was bad last year. You know, I thought it was bad going into the year last year. I thought it was bad going into the year this year. Uh, I, I just think, you know, you you one of the problems the Rangers have had over their history, in my estimation, is that they have always overestimated their talent. They have always said, yeah, I think this is good enough. Uh, and, and whether they had the ability to go out and get something better or not, you know, listen, uh, I think if John Daniels had gotten the carte blanche that Ray Davis gave Chris Young this last off season, maybe we would have seen different results the last, you know, five years or 10 years or whatever. Um, but the situation is for me is that, you know, Chris Young showed such great, uh, prescience to say, okay, I got these starters. No, that's not enough. I'm going to go out and get Jake Odorizzi too. I mean, you know, I'm going to go out and get Andrew Heaney too. I'm getting Nathan Eovaldi too. I mean, it was just like I'm going to pile up starters here because I know something's going to go wrong. And that was just genius to me to do that uh, because I don't think I don't think many clubs would have thought to do that. Uh, and yet, on the other end, at the, in the bullpen, it was like, yeah, we'll get by with that. Uh, you can only address so much, right? I guess mean, you, you can I mean, say you that. have to at some point for where they were and so many places and positions they had to address, you have to prioritize it, right? Well, you do have to prioritize, but you, but the bull, I will say this about bullpens is, is that John Daniels, one of his strengths was he, he usually was really pretty good at building a bullpen. And, uh, and no, I, but, I do, but JD's, JD's perspective on bullpens also was, and, and I'm going to, I've oversimplified this a little bit, but I've told him this in the past. I mean, I thought his approach to the bullpens was, well, they just kind of fall out of trees. That you can find a reliever, a hard-throwing reliever anywhere, and if you if you try enough of them out there, you will eventually hit. I don't know, Kevin, that this team overestimated this bullpen. I, I do think it I, I do think you've had a lot of guys. You've had Dunning, Duran, um, Tavares, Josh Young all kind of overachieve and nobody on the bullpen side has overachieved. None of these yeah. young players have overachieved. You would have hoped that Brock Burke had continued to take a step forward after last year. He has not. You would hope that somebody of John King and Josh Spores and Jonathan Hernandez and Jose LeClerc 
would take a step forward from last year, and they have not. And so I just think that the gap with what's gone right for this club and what is an issue just continues to widen and widen, and the gap gets gets bigger. Yeah, it does. Uh, but I, I will say, I think the, the pedigrees are better on the lineup side than they are in that in the bullpen side. I, I think that that you could expect. I mean, Josh Young, look, he's a top five pick, and and he was really talented. So I would expect Josh Young to be pretty good. And so he's 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 playing kind of like I thought he would. Now Durant, he was the, is he was the eighth pick, not a top five. Eighth top pick. Five. I'm sorry. I kept, I kept thinking whether that was four. Okay, all right. Can't remember. But Durant, which, Durant has is, outplayed. Tavares, you and I have had long conversations about Tavares, and neither one of us has completely bought Leody because his minor league numbers were so poor. He has right. really made some changes at the plate that the Rangers feel are is sustainable. And so these are guys who have taken steps forward in terms of their growth. I think, look, I thought Jonathan Hernandez would take some steps forward. The guy has great stuff, and I thought he had the mindset to be a closer. I think he's really struggled in leverage situations, um, and and that has been that's been a real minus for this team. Well, I, I will say this too: both of the guys, Leclerc and Jonathan Hernandez, both they just haven't been the same since they came back uh, from their injuries. You know, and and they, they've had some moments, but they have not been those guys again. Uh, not not consistently. Uh, I don't think Leclerc has look. Leclerc got a long term deal after one year very early on, and I don't think he's been terribly consistent since. I do think the last six weeks of last season he was very very good, but he's taken a step backward off of that for the start of this year, which is not uncommon with relievers. It's just the nature of the game. You know, we talked about how unpredictable hockey playoff series are. Bullpen performances is, is the most unpredictable thing in baseball. Well, the problem for the Rangers, too, has been, you know, maybe they just went too far with letting guys go and trading guys away. You know, Manuel Plaza, Pete Fairbank, you know, there, there have been a lot of really good relievers that have come through here that they have moved on, uh, and uh, and maybe they just went to that well once too often. Yeah, the Fairbank and Classe moves really look bad, right? Classe was for Corey Kluber, who they got one inning out of because yeah. Ray Davis Ray Davis wanted to have a legitimate team going into the twenty twenty season. And, you know, it looked like it looked like they had put together a decent little rotation. And the next thing you know, you've got COVID and, and Corey Kluber tears his shoulder muscle. Fairbanks was a trade for for Nick Solak because the Rangers thought that Peter Fairbanks' shoulder could not hold up. He'd already had two Tommy Johns. He was a walking medical miracle. Uh, you know, so they thought, hey, we can trade a guy who we've seen in the big leagues here for two weeks for a potential everyday player. Well, that was a poor evaluation. It just didn't it, it didn't work out. Solak never developed into an everyday player, and Fairbanks has surpassed teams perspective on on how durable he was so those are two those are two bad moves that the rangers made where they tried to leverage relievers for guys who were traditionally more considered more valuable than relievers right you would you would trade a reliever for a starting pitcher if you get comparable if you get solid performance from the starting pitcher you trade a reliever any day of the week for an everyday regular if you got performance of an everyday regular the rangers just over value the rangers over evaluated the talent they were getting back yeah well no i didn't have a problem with that trade that class a for for kluber either i mean you know that's just what you said this guy was a you know he was a great pitcher in his day uh he just didn't have anything left 
All right. Uh, before we get out of the Rangers thing, Evan, we have not said anything about what they're going to do with the fourth pick. I know it's the fourth pick this time. I know I was wrong about uh, what uh, uh, Josh Young was. Uh, so what uh, – have you got an early idea what the, the Rangers are going to do with that pick? I mean, I, I think it's going to be an outfielder. Look, the, there's there's three outfielders that'll be that should be there, all of whom are very attractive, um, but offer different backgrounds. You've got the college outfielder in Wyatt Langford from Florida. You've got um, uh, Max Clark, the outfielder from Indiana, who may have more power. Um, and then you've got uh, I forget Jenkins' first name, um, the outfielder from North Carolina. Uh, who has really kind of burst on the scene more this year? So those are th- that's what they're going to have to de- kind of pick between. I believe they're sending a large contingent of people to the SEC tournament this week, where you'll you know you have Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens who could go one and two from LSU. You'll have Wyatt Langford there. You'll have a guy that I like that I think whose stock has fallen in Enrique Bradfield from from Vanderbilt, but whose speed will certainly play in the new game. Um, so there's, there's a number of guys there and they have been out and looking at, at the two high schoolers in depth. And, and I think that's what it's just going to come down to is which outfielder do they feel like has the most projection, um, and is easiest to project to reach that projection. That's a stupid way to say it, but I, I don't know any, you, you know, you, you the, I, Listen, I've changed my tune on a lot of things, Kevin. I have, I've become much more an advocate of the college player. And even with that, again, I go back to the Jack Leiter versus Jordan Lawler decision. Leiter has started to turn things around, and and he has he has started to get it. But Jordan Lawler, who we both saw together, and who we thought we're not real sure that this would be the right call at number two, is absolutely tearing it up at Double A as a twenty year old. So. Um, while I like the college players, I also see that there can be much more upside to the high school guys. You just It's just harder to get it right, I think. Yeah, there's no question about that. And and I, I do think that uh, the Rangers are in a different position today than they were in two and three or four years ago as well. Uh, they've got some talent built up in some places. Uh, you got Evan Carter kind of knocking on the door there in center field. Leotis playing pretty well right now. Ezekiel Durant's playing very well. Adolis Garcia is playing uh, lights out. You know, if, if he continues these numbers, he's going to have 200 RBIs for the season. So so when you have that kind of talent built up in front of you, then you can afford to take that high school kid if you if you really like him better. Uh, and, and so – I, I think, yeah, this is a, it's a great position to be in. And that's, a, you know, I'm going to write this column at some point. For all the complaints about the the, the Rangers in the draft and the developing in the farm system, and, and I have banged away at that for a, a while myself, you only have to get a few of these guys to hit, you know, really. That, that solves everything. If an Ezekiel Duran hits and you get him, well, then you've got him for the – hopefully you got him for the next 10 years. Uh, and he's a great player. So, well, that's a great that, that's point. Issue. That, that, it, it's no. a great point, too. And I think the, the narrative on Rangers scouting needs to change a little bit. I mean, you look at what the Rangers got for Joey Gallo. And so they did a great job on pro scouting there, right? I mean, an absolutely great job with Duran, Josh Smith, who's going to be at least a serviceable big league utility player, and Glenn Otto, who I think could still be, who, who could be a part of this bullpen before it's all over this year. Um, you look at the amateur side on the colleges, 
the Rangers invested heavily into college pitching, into college players in Young and Rocker and Lighter. Now, some of that has been up and down with Rocker and Lighter, but it certainly appears that they've gotten an everyday player in the Josh Young pick, right? Which is something they didn't do in the first round. Then, you know, you talk about high schoolers and how unpredictable they were, and the Rangers have had an awful job, done an awful job for a long time, particularly particularly with reaches in the second round. And I think in some regards, that's why the Evan Carter pick was so roundly questioned in 2020. And who's getting the last laugh here? The Rangers are, because Evan Carter is looking very much like as good a player as there was selected in the 2020 draft. And my point is, we've spent a lot of time harping on Kip Fag and, and the Rangers' lack of production in the drafts. But I think around 2017, 2018, they made some changes into how they evaluated things and how they did things. And I think you're now seeing the results of a much more productive scouting operation. Yeah, let's see how it turns out. But I think you're right. I, I think that there's a possibility here for them to build up something. There. I, I I like where everything's going in this uh, for this team. It's just the bullpen is the issue at this point, and uh, and a pretty big one at that. Uh, the fortunate thing for the Rangers is that a lot of other teams are having the same problem. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment. We're going to move out of that now into the ever popular potpourri. And in our potpourri today, we're going to talk about uh, the Cowboys and the OTAs coming up this week. We're going to talk about uh, the Mavericks and what's going on with them and uh, the NBA season winding down. And uh, and also the Colonial and a, and, a, and a guy is going to be showing up out there that no one would even have noticed before last week at the PGA. So, uh, David, let's start off with uh, you and talking about the, the OTAs this week. What do you – first of all, give us that schedule. When's that – what's come back and entail? Well, they actually start – this is the third phase of the offseason program, which means for uh, the first and only time this offseason that they can they can run drills. The coaches can preside over drills and basically run a practice on the field. Uh, they can do seven-on-seven seven drills, nine-on-seven seven drills, and 11-on-11 11 11 drills. Um, but there is no contact in the offseason whatsoever. So, um, you know, you can start installing your plays and your packages, um, but you're you're running to spots. You're not um, – there, there's no physical force behind it. So a lot of it is is tempo to get it, repetition, so you get it right. Uh, and, and you just mark and go through your spot so you can start to run it in time uh, and, uh, you know, do it the way you'll need to do it in a game starting in training camp in July. So, you know, this phase, th- this phase still has value. Obviously, th- this offense is going to be different this year, so it's going to be looking at uh, the, the offensive, uh, you know, see maybe get an idea of how players are used, whatever. Th- this is also the phase, too, where, uh, coaching staffs will put players in different positions to see how they respond to see if they can have a role I- at that spot. Uh, maybe take an outside receiver and work him in the slot a little bit more to see how he responds to see if you can do that. Uh, defensively, Dan Quinn's going to be looking at a lot of different packages and, and see how guys respond so he can keep offenses uh, a little bit back on their heels with the looks and disguising uh, what they want to do. So, um, you know, all that being said, we've talked about here, I think people are still wondering how this offensive line is going to shake out. You can see by what they do rotation-wise who is getting repetition where. 
but you're not going to have a feel for whether or not this is going to be a solid group until you get into training camp in July and August because, um, you know, a, an offensive lineman can can hit their spot from a certain position, but he doesn't have a 330-pound guy pushing back on him. Uh, that's the true test of where the offensive line is. So it's more about just getting getting your feet under you, uh, knowing the system, uh, going through what's going to be different this year than what there was last year, making sure the players know that. So when they when they get to training camp in July, they can they can really uh, dig down and, and do the work that's necessary to get ready for the season. So, David, you just mentioned about knowing where you are this year. Um, I know that's just making you look back a little bit here, uh, a little bit of a surprise maybe. Uh, but do you have – Fewer questions this year at this point than you did last year. Uh, uh, more questions about the same. What would you say? Well, um, I I do not minimize back to back twelve and five seasons. The first time this this franchise has won in back to back years uh, in fifteen years, it put together back to back winning seasons. Uh, I think this is a better base than they've had in quite a while. I think this is, you know the. I guess the questions I had last year at this point were you saw how effective the defense could be when it was forcing turnovers, but would they still be an effective defense when they were, if they were unable to force turnovers at the high rate that they had two years ago and the defense did. And I think this defense has gotten even better, has even more talent there. Uh, This is the best, most solid defense from up front all the way through the back end uh, in, I would say, 20, 25 years here. Um, it is it is very good. So I think they're a more balanced team. Um, offensively, they'll be a different team. I don't know that they'll be as – I don't know that they'll be as explosive offensively as they've been, but that's been their curse in some ways too, right? Uh, They've been a little more explosive. They've also had more turnovers. I I think the goal is about being a more efficient offense, especially with where this defense is. So, you know, even though they've lost some offensive firepower, uh, I don't have a a lot of questions there. I mean, the biggest question at the moment is just kicker. You know, in in, in a league where a high percentage of games are decided by three points or less, to not have – you know, a kicker at this stage, I, I think, is a little off-putting. But there, there are some guys out there with a proven track record. Uh, Gould, Robbie Gould, is probably the the biggest name, and and Mason Crosby, who kicked for uh, um, you know McCarthy in in Green Bay for such a long time. Um, so I, I think they will probably get a player there. But I, I would say overall, fewer questions than I had at, at this stage last year. So this is going to be the Cowboys bullpen issue kicker. That's what it's going to be. They're going to take it, it for be. granted, yeah. and it's going to be a guy that's going to come down there, and he's going to screw up. I mean, I would say the chances of Brett Mark coming back are still probably at least 30%, wouldn't you? I think it's – yeah, I'll keep it at 30. I mean, it depends on how this plays out. You know, I think the odds are he won't be back. So, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll keep it down there at 30 I may actually put it at 20 or 15%, but uh, you can't completely rule it out because of how unsettled the position was. And he was very, very good for them until that stretch at the end. Now, the problem was the stretch was at the end, 
and it was in an automatic part of the game with with extra points. And when you start talking about a bullpen, you know, blowing leads uh, and and taking wins off the board, uh, missing extra points late in in uh, close games is not a recipe for uh, you to feel good about that phase of it either. And that and that has a disproportionate impact on the uh, psyche of a team, but. Uh, you know, I, I'm still, I know we've touched on it briefly here and it might be interesting at some point to, to do a deeper dive into it, but I'm, I'm still amazed with as specialized as, look, all sports have become specialized now, right? But it's as specialized as, as the NFL has become and focusing on these positions. Um, you still see very few draft picks used on kickers in a league where, the scoring margin is so much less than it's ever been. And uh, where kickers have a, a, a greater impact on the outcome of games, arguably because of the closer games than they've ever had before. And it's still, by and large, much like we were talking about on the bullpen. You don't see, you don't see guys develop there much. You either, you know, you go to the recycle bin uh, with, with guys who have been in the league to fill those positions rather than, well, look, let's use a Let's use a fifth-round pick on a kicker, get him in here, develop him. If he's not ready this year, let's develop him for down the road. And I just think – I've got to think with where the NFL is now that you will start to see that at some point, but you you have not yet. Well, I'd like to see what the numbers are about that, David. The, the guys who've been drafted as opposed to the guys who were free agents. Uh, you know, I, I always think about Sebastian Janikowski, right? Yeah. You know, and the Raiders taking him. Uh, and he had a pretty good career, but I don't think he was one of the great kickers ever. And so I think that's, I'm sure that, that, that the organizations are looking at it like, uh, look, uh, I don't know that our, our chances are any better if we draft a guy as opposed to signing a guy, but I'm with you, you know, it's one of those things that we look back, you know, and think, and think, wow, look how they used to just leave this up for grabs for such an important thing and not just kickers, but punters too. You know, uh, that you would uh, put no more science into it than what they are now. You know, because if you look back at the old days and and the way they did everything, it was just it's everybody was flying by the seat of their pants on everything. And now because of analytics and everything we know that uh, that you can take advantage of, uh, there's there seemed to be nothing left to chance except for kickers and punters. So, yeah, again, it's fascinating because every what, what do you see every year? It's like, oh, well. Eight of their 17 games were decided by three points or less. Yeah. So that's not worth a draft pick. You know? <laughs> I'm no kidding. You, you throw draft picks at all these other positions. But, but I think it also shows, well, look, the, the, the ball's a little bit different. Uh, you know, uh, the, the compression of it's different. It's, I, I mean, I get all this, but what this past year, I think you only had two, maybe three field goal kickers even drafted in the entire draft. Yeah, that's probably right. All right, uh, let's move on now. Let's talk about. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, um, the Mavericks now uh, because they firmed up that tenth pick. And Callie Kaplan uh, talked to a couple of people with ESPN about what they would do with that tenth pick. We've we've heard pretty much all along that the Mavericks were planning on packaging that pick if they were able to keep it uh, and trying to acquire some veteran help to surround um, Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving if he does indeed return. Um, 
I, I got to say, David, you know, for everything I've read about the draft, uh, uh, it, it seems like there are guys available at 10 who might be viable options. Uh, Taylor Hendricks of, from uh, UCF and uh, Anthony Black from Arkansas are, are two names that were cited, guys that were uh, kind of, uh, you know, two-way players, uh, very uh, tough uh, defensively and unselfish players, the kind of guys – that it seems like that's the Mavericks what they want, and and obviously when you're drafting them, you're getting them very cheap, uh, and that's been kind of one of the issues for the Mavericks is that they've got a lot of role players, and they were pretty good uh, in last year's run to the Western Conference Finals. They weren't so good this year, and the, and the problem is that some of those guys who were just role players were making too much money. Uh, yeah, you know Dwight Powell in particular. And how do you control cost? You get rookie in those rookies in those positions versus veteran players who are on the free agent market, which by definition of being a free agent, you're going to have to overpay for to some extent. Well, and that's the you know, and of course, you know, and Donnie Nelson told me that's a but you long have to have an eye for talent and develop them, right? And you also have to be willing to play rookies, which well, a lot of coaches will not. You got to have the stomach for it. I mean, you know, and I, and I just don't think Mark Cuban has a stomach for it. I mean, that was what the term Donnie used uh, with me was we don't want to babysit these guys. And, and then I understood that when he told me that 10 years ago, whenever, however long ago that was. Well, and, and look at their draft philosophy. How many first round picks have they given away? I mean, they, they freely distribute first round picks to, to get veteran players in. So that's always the approach they think. But, but I will argue when you have a young, elite, transcendent player it makes more sense to hold on to these picks and build around them because you know what skill sets you need and you have some cost control uh in in your ability to do that that you don't if you're constantly going back to the free agent market well and then that's what Callie pointed out today and bobby marks from espn had pointed out was that when you've got probably a, you're going to have almost a hundred million dollars a year committed to two guys, your backcourt, right? So yeah. if if that's going to be cost you so much, you better be getting some deals someplace else. Uh, and it, and I wrote a column last week uh, comparing the situation that the Spurs are in. Uh, a, 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 was once a prime rival. The Spurs had kind of fallen on bad times the last few years, but of course the Spurs are just playing the game like people normally play it in the NBA, which is that hey, we're not very good. We, we, you know, Kawhi Leonard wanted out. We we, we, we accommodated him and he got out so now all right let's settle back now let's let's let these things drift and we're gonna you know build with young players and now over the next seven years the spurs have 13 uh first round picks and then one of them they're going to use on uh victor Wimbanyama uh from france who's considered a a generational prospect uh this is why uh, greg popovich is not going to retire and everybody was asking him that uh, when he was here for the uh, the last game of the season, uh, you, you know, they're going to be really good. And you look at that situation over the next seven years, 13 first-round draft picks. The Mavericks, it's hard to figure out how many they're going to have because they they still owe one to the Knicks uh, and, uh, and then they owe one to the Nets. Uh, yeah, on that, yeah. In, in 2029 for Kyrie Irving. Uh, and so we know they're not going to have that kind of future built up. Plus, they have all the problems uh, that they have trying to manage their cap as well, and the and the Spurs have twice as much cap space available this season alone as the as the Mavericks do. So this is going to be a very difficult season uh, off season for the Mavericks to improve themselves. Uh, and it, so let me ask you this: my inclination would be, 
I think I'm going to keep that pick, number 10. Uh, it's supposed to be this draft is deep in three and Ds, uh, three and D wings. That's certainly what the Mavericks need. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to keep that pick and make it? Let me answer. I, I see Evan raising his hand. Let's, let's go to Evan first before we lose him. I, I believe I was just having a seizure. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> really? I'm not surprised. I, Evan's banging away in there. He's coughing. <laughs> he's he's typing away. He's putting I his have, shoes on. He's just he, he can't sit still. He's he's the classic ADD kid in your class, right? He's just can you just sit there and be quiet? No, Kevin. Kevin, there's there's a difference between attention deficit disorder and being bored by what you're saying and. <laughs> See, this um, is when people say, why is why is Kevin so snippy? You know, and it's like, see, this is why. This is well, why I'm snippy. I have raised four kids and now I'm raising Evan. It is like too much for me to have to, to do this at this late stage in my life when I should be enjoying life, when I should be reaping the benefits of all the hard work that I have put in over the years. Just this morning, I had to, to send an email to Gary Level to say, can we get somebody to read Evan's copy before it gets into the paper? Because the man doesn't punctuate. He doesn't clearly doesn't go back and read his copy. He doesn't do any of that. So we're going to have suffering from late stage, Evan. Is that what you're afflicted with right now? Is that what you're telling us? Where where were the wait a minute? Let's welcome to the punctuation podcast. Where were the punctuation issues in my column? This in this one, oh, this will keep people listening here. People yeah. love punctuation talk. Yeah, in this uh, one, you Tom did, Wilson you did, does. You didn't fail to put a period at the end of a sentence. You know uh, that's that that's what that's always been one of my favorites is when you when you when you forget to put a period at the end of a sentence. No, not that. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding, you, Evan. I'm just teasing. Evan did not have anything to add to that, David. So you, I did because I, I, what I wanted to, I was trying to ring the secret signal because you had hit our secret word. We know that every week you want to somehow work Wembenyama into the podcast, and it's it's Wembenyama. Ma, I'm sorry. What is it, Kevin? (laughs) Wembenyama. It's like it's like Antetokounmpo. I I practice saying both of those names, and I'm really good at them now. All right. Well, congratulations to you. You win the secret word of the day. Yeah, secret word. Uh, I've got to go back here to looking at Josh Spores with two strikes. Go, go right ahead. Okay, go right ahead. Uh, so I so would David, rather keep ten, but uh, their history on bringing veteran free agents in isn't very good, and their history on developing draft picks isn't very good. No, um, but. They've had so few picks, and and they still won't have high draft picks for many of the upcoming years. Um, I, I think with where that pick is, with what you could generally get, look, it'll have to be part of a package. But if if Kyrie Irving's going to be here with the two salaries you're going to pay on those two guys and Doncic and Irving, uh, I think it's pretty much imperative that you use that pick and go go with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the the package would be. I mean, so we'd have to see that, right? If you could, sure. if you could show me you're going to get make a, a great deal, but you know, if you're going to trade this pick, you're probably going to try to p- trade another pick. Uh, because well, we keep it. I would always say this organization under Mark Cuban has always leaned toward turning those assets 
into veteran players versus keeping them and developing them by and large. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and every year is different. You know, the talent level is different and where you're picking means something. And all these things are, are, are critical, right? Uh, but the deal is, just like we were talking about with the Rangers a few minutes ago, you only have to hit on a few of these guys uh, to, to make something really make a difference in your in your organization. Then, if, uh, then you might have a guy for five, six, seven years if he's a, if he's a decent pick. And, and, you know, Josh Green has kind of turned out you know, to be a pretty nice player. They, they still can't really figure out what to do with him. Uh, Jaden Hardy was really a revelation last year, but those are the only two picks on their roster. You know, uh, I'd like to, you know, go and look at the rest of the NBA and see, you know, what's the percentages everywhere else? That seems awfully low. Two guys on a 15 man roster, you know, or guys that you drafted. Uh, so, so it, you know, uh, I, I've just always felt like, Look, I love the way the Spurs run their organization. They they know what they want. That you know, we want tough, unselfish, smart players. That's what we're looking for. I mean, everybody can say that, but that's what the Spurs are looking for when they draft. Uh, and they've had a lot of luck. There's no question about that. They've had three number one picks. That is a lot of luck uh, to be able to pull that off. But they also have drafted very well. You know, uh, Manu Ginobili was the second round pick. You know. Yes. Uh, Tony, Tony Parker, Parker was not a high. It was yeah, like a twenty-eight. Not a lottery pick. Yeah. No. So so they've done a really great job at drafting and developing, and and, and of course they've been together forever. You know, R.C. Buford and and Pop have been together for over thirty years. So you know they have a great organization. Whereas the Mavericks last year traded for Christian Wood uh, without even knowing that Jason Kidd wanted him. You know, apparently. So uh, you know, how does that happen? You know, you you can't. You can't have that kind of disconnect in such a small organization when you're talking about such a small roster. You know, yeah. you, you just simply cannot make mistakes. On a 53-man roster, you can, yeah, yeah, sure, you're going to make a few mistakes, and that's okay. You can get away with that. You know, it's, it's, no, it's okay. You cannot get away with it uh, in the NBA roster. It's just, it's too small, uh, and and you have to have a, you have to have a plan. I've, I've always just felt like that Mark, there's a lot of Jerry Jones in Mark. I think he's a lot smarter about a lot of things than Jerry is, not business-wise, but but from a personnel standpoint-wise. But I do think his head is turned by stars. And if he thinks, oh, I've got a chance to get this star, all right, all bets are off, let's do that. And I just I just feel like that's the way he's motivated and driven. You've, you've, you've seen the kind of the chaos in the organization about how it's been built over the years and who's in charge, who's running what. Uh, supposedly that's been better the last few years, but you know, we're not seeing, we're not seeing the fruit of that. So quick, quick aside, uh, the most talented star driven rosters among the final four players. I mean, the final four teams in the NBA and the conference finals are the Lakers and the Celtics, right? Yeah. Yeah, Lakers are out. Celtics will probably be out tonight, based on yeah. how we saw them not respond in, in Game Three. Yeah, and no if they're not out tonight, they'll be out in the next game. So uh, Miami's going to advance with really only true one lead guy. Uh, yeah. It's not this two star system that we've heard so much about, or three stars on the good team. Um, Jokic is clearly that guy in Denver. Murray's very, very good. 
But is he a star at, at, at that level? I would say probably a step below that. That's closer to kind of the dirt Jason Terry sort of. He's of kind of Devin Booker to me. He's yeah, Devin yeah. Booker to me. And, uh, and and what the other teams with, that were star heavy, Phoenix, gone out too yeah. straight. I mean, look look at these teams and and what team from the West was in the conference finals last year? Dallas with one clear delineated star and a very, very good player behind him, but not necessarily a star. Go back two years in the Eastern Conference Finals, Atlanta got to the Eastern Conference Finals. Trey Young, a star, their second best player, not up on that level. You can get there either way, but you have to be committed to how you're building, and you don't get the sense that the Mavericks are really committed to what what they are and who they are. Yeah, I think it's it all just changes uh, from day to day. All right, before we get out of here, let's talk about the Colonial this week. Um, Michael Block is going to be out there. Uh, and so uh, I'm watching the PGA the other day. Well, I'm, I'm actually flipping around watching lots of different things. And I and I flip back on and I see this huge ovation for Michael Block. And I'm thinking, what what the heck's happened here? He's not even at 18 here. What's what's going on? And then I, I realized he had just hold on 15 on the fly uh a hole in one uh at the uh, at the PGA. And of course he finished 15th because of that he is gets an uh, a, an automatic invitation to come back to the PGA next year uh and he's going to he got an invitation this week to play at Colonial. So that will be a lot of fun for fans to go out there and uh, walk around with him. He's uh, he seems to be quite a character. Uh, but that's uh he was a great story at the PGA last week, and which which needed a great story to kind of you know muffle the fact that uh, one of those LIV guys uh, won Brooks Kepka won his fifth major. So that was uh, kind of a that it was interesting to me to see going into this into last week how uh, Roy McIlroy had really declined to kind of get into all that again. Yeah. That 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 has really settled. I don't know if that came from the top down where somebody just decided we don't need to talk about this anymore. I don't know if it came from the players themselves and they just decided, you know what, nothing good can come from this constant, you know, feud that we've had going on or not. But, uh, but very clearly, uh, Brooks Kepka, he's a, a major animal when he gets in those games, uh, with, uh, with five majors now. Yeah. A couple of things real quick. I know, know we need to go here, but, uh, Michael Block is like, this is 10 cup in real life, right? This is yes. Roy McAvoy. We, we yes. have seen the real Roy McAvoy here on, on the course. And, and I will say the other thing too is that tied in on the, on the live argument and, and Kepka winning this. If you hadn't had Michael Block, I think you would probably have more focus on this whole live situation and winning a major and should these guys be, but, but Michael Block, put such a feel-good, uh, overriding sense of, wow, isn't this a neat story that I, I think the point of discussion on Liv was not as poignant as it would have been if Michael Block hadn't been in this tournament and hadn't emerged the way he did. And and he's going to be at Colonial this week, the you know, the the first fruits of his efforts, uh, where he got he he got the call right afterwards and uh uh, Colonial rightfully so invited him, and and don't you think the rest of this year that that tournament directors who have a little bit of a weak field are going to say, hey, well, let's get this guy here. He he he's still a hot name, so I, it, it's going to be interesting to see 
Um, but look, th- this was a moment in time, right? And in, in that, I mean, the hole in one just said it all. I mean, that was. Um, the, the guy said this was going to be the highlight of his life. That yeah. from now on is all downhill from it's here. All downhill. <laughs> it's a hard thing to say when you're 46 years old that it's all going to be downhill from here. Yeah, I, I, as to your point about whether you know further invitations, he's going to have to keep playing well like he did this yeah. last week. Uh, that's going to be number one. Uh, but but yeah, I mean it 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 is a phenomenal story, and he and he is like I said, quite a, seems to be quite a character. Uh, I, I will, uh, I, I don't doubt that there'll be a big following for him out there at the colonial this week. Uh, that's a, that's a great course and a great tournament. Uh, and, uh, hopefully the weather holds up out there unlike it did, uh, at the Nelson earlier this month. So, uh, we'll see how they do going out of here. All right. Evans, uh, Evan, are you smoking a cigar? Are you vaping? Or is he vaping? Oh my gosh. He's not vaping, is he? It's a pen. I got a pen in my mouth because I'm constantly yeah. writing or typing or vaping or I don't know. <laughs> You're out of control. Evan is out of control. Evan, had you been to Pittsburgh Stadium uh, before this series? Yes. Really? Yeah. I've, uh, Kevin, I've where do you, been where to, do you put Where do you put that one? I think I've been to 50... I've been to state. I've been to Major League Baseball games in like fifty stadiums now. Um, I, listen, the view the view from the press box in Pittsburgh to me is the view is unmatched. I know that the view in San Francisco is fantastic. Um, the press box is lower in San Francisco, so you know you've got a better view of of, of the game as a reporter. Um, but sitting in that press box and looking out over the river. And the Clemente Bridge, which is painted yellow in Pirates colors and Steelers colors. And then looking at downtown on a gorgeous night, uh, it's just it, 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 it's just a really breathtaking vista for me. I don't understand. I said this to somebody last night. I just don't know how people can come to a Pirates game, even if the product on the field is not very good and not have an enjoyable time. It just seems like such a lovely stadium. And, you know, yesterday I was walking around the stadium before the game, walked down to the, to the riverfront and, you know, there's, they've got great statuary stuff here of Hannes Wagner, Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell. Clearly there's a great history along the riverfront. They've got these giant baseballs that all, um, have the careers of the Hall of Famers who played in Pittsburgh, whether for the Pirates or for the Crawford Grays. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Homestead Grays. Um, they've got uh, an intimate ballpark. I, I, we had a conversation in the dugout yesterday with, with Bruce Bochy, and uh, my rankings were uh, Petco here and then San Francisco. The only reason I like Petco better is because it has an inherent advantage, and that is that the weather in San Diego is perfect year-round. Um, and that ballpark also does look out at downtown. And if you go out the back of that ballpark, you look at the bridge to Coronado. So you get you get great views no matter where you're at in that ballpark. But, yeah, I, I, I think they did a, a marvelous job with this stadium. Um, I think that the, the, the city of Pittsburgh deserves a better product on the field than the Pirates have given them, which – you know, falls on the at the hands of ownership. 
Um, but you cannot go into the stadium and not think that it's, it's an absolutely lovely experience. Yeah, I haven't been there. Uh, you know, when I was covering baseball in the 80s, it was still all those awful stadiums. Uh, and uh, so uh, I haven't been to Pittsburgh. I'd love to go. Uh, the wife, the lovely wife would not let me go to a game at Petco when we were in San Diego last year. I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, we almost divorced over that. And uh, and now, uh, did you see what the attendance was at, at uh, the Tampa Bay game last night? Eight, 8,500, I believe. Yeah, yeah, something like that. This is a team, the best team in baseball, and this is what's, what's going on there. So, yep. So, Evan, tell me this. Uh, is it going to be another Oakland situation there in Tampa Bay? I, I listen. I think there's a workable situation if they can find a state if, if they can simply get a stadium deal done on the other side of the bay. It, it's just impossible for people to drive across the Howard Franklin Bridge at rush hour to go to St. Pete. The, the fan base in St. Pete is older. Pretty much where the stadium is in in St. Petersburg parallels all of baseball's issues right the population is old it is it, it, it doesn't it's not in tune with where the game is going and so they can put on a great production there they can put a great product on the field and they're just not going to draw if they find a way to get that stadium into tampa uh, i think that they're going to see a significant a significant increase that's that's my gut um I also want to. I, I do want to applaud the Rays' ownership on this front. I think that they have done the best job possible with that facility of making it attractive. Whereas, you know, the A's ownership, I really don't think has put anything into the Coliseum and has let it just fall into disrepair. And so, it's a it's a crappy product in a crappy stadium. Who wants to go to that? No, nobody does. Well, I have to say, uh, I'm not convinced that people in Florida actually like baseball. You know, uh, they didn't support the Marlins. They, you know, they, they haven't supported the Rays. I, I mean, at what point do you say, hey, you know, does this state really want to have uh, a Major League franchise in the, in the middle of the summer? I mean, obviously, it's a great spot for, for uh, spring training, but I don't know that it's such a great job, a uh, great spot for uh, summer baseball. So those are all legitimate questions to ask. All right, that's going to do it for us this week. We probably got a little bit overboard. Our producer, Christian Vasquez, will do a nice job of tightening all this up, hopefully. Uh, So from everybody in here and everybody out there, we'll see you next time. Thanks.